This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 306, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, this is Daniel Glass. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Daniel Glass Podcast. This is your host, of course, Daniel Glass. Uh, and today I'm recording this particular episode from a uh, Provincetown, Massachusetts, where I'm sort of on a work vacation um, recording with an incredible female singer named Marilyn May, who uh, may not be that well-known um, in in the in the in the mainstream world, but is uh, kind of a superstar in the world of uh, Broadway cabaret. She's 87 years old now and um, is one of probably the greatest female singers I've ever worked with, and I've worked with many. Uh, She um, actually holds the record for number of appearances on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, number of appearances by a vocalist. She was on The Tonight Show 76 times over the years. Um, And although... Like I said, she's not all that well-known in mainstream circles today. Uh, She's kind of a superstar in the Broadway cabaret world. So I'm doing a five-night stint with her up here in Provincetown, Mass. And it is a beautiful late August um, weather we're having up here. Gorgeous out on Cape Cod. Provincetown is on the very tip of Cape Cod. So um, as I have hoped to do, brought my microphone with me, my bully pulpit, and uh, I'm going to do some podcasting from on the road as well as uh, in town in New York City. So, um, today's topic, I thought, would just be a fun reminiscence um, looking back at, and I'm, I'm going to follow this up with uh, some questions on my Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator page for you, because I'm sure this, this episode will inspire uh, your own responses and reactions. But what I would like to talk about today are some important concerts that I've seen in my life that affected me as a musician, as a person, as a lover of music. And um, I think today I'll start just by going through sort of the earlier, more formative years of my life, uh, maybe up through college, uh, before I became a professional musician, because the more I've sort of sat around and thought about this topic, the more that I end up feeling like uh, I just keep adding to the list, because there have been so many. Um, and, I, and I look back at it, and it's kind of amazing in my almost five decades on this planet, uh, just how much great music I've been fortunate enough to have seen, been inspired by, and, and I'm talking about in, a, in the context of a, a, live, uh, a live setting here. So... Um, and of course, you know, as you listen to this, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of uh, your own experiences come up, and uh, I encourage you to be in touch, uh, post when I put this up on the Facebook page, you know, your own experiences and, and the concerts that affected you, and uh, we'll get a, a dialogue going, uh, which is interesting. I'm sure um, everybody has had these musical moments, whether live or recorded, that have really inspired them in their life. So I'm going to go back to when I was a kid and some of my earliest musical memories uh, seeing concerts. I was uh, fortunate enough, I guess you could say, to grow up in Honolulu, Hawaii, as as many of you know. Uh, And, um, you know, we didn't necessarily, we weren't the the hub 
of uh, cultural activity in Hawaii. We were something of an outpost. But surprisingly, uh, Hawaii gets a fair number of pretty incredible concerts, um, particularly artists... A, maybe wanting to have a vacation, like myself up here in Provincetown right now, or B, artists that would be uh, on the way to Japan or the Orient, uh, the Far East, to tour, they would often stop and do shows in Hawaii. So Hawaii was kind of this weird little stopping off place in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, My primary musical foundation as a kid, at least at home, was um, the... Folk, folk music. My parents were really into folk music, and we listened a lot to Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan and uh, uh, Pete Seeger, uh, you know, folk, folk stuff from like the, the 1950s, um, which was the music my parents went to when they were growing up, and, and this was the, the early 70s now. So um, I, I remember some of my earliest concert experiences were some of those artists. So obviously I didn't see Woody Guthrie because he died before I was born, but uh, Arlo Guthrie, his son... Uh, was one of the first shows I saw. Uh, Arlo, of course, his his most famous tune being Alice's Restaurant, which he did, which we had the album, thought that was super cool. And he had he had played, I believe he had been at Woodstock. Uh, so it was definitely, this was the early 70s, there was that Woodstock vibe happening. Hawaii was a place where a lot of people um, went to get away and kind of reinvent themselves, recreate themselves. So if you think of California as being kind of a cutting-edge place in the early 70s where a lot of movements were going on, ashrams, meditation, yoga, you know, all this kind of stuff, Hawaii actually was even more of that vibe. And my parents were maybe a little older than sort of the hippie generation, but, but, but they definitely had a lot of friends in that realm. And so as really young kids, my sister and I were exposed to a lot of cool um, cool music like this. And I also remember we had what were called the Crater Festivals back then, which which were live concerts in Diamond Head Crater. Uh, they did these like 69, 70, 71. I'm not sure exactly the years, but they were called the Sunshine Festival, the Crater Festival, and it was a really big deal. And I remember going to the, one of those with my parents. It was like Woodstock because the, the, you're in the middle of a, a volcanic crater, big round crater with edges all around. And all these, you know, kind of hippie microbuses and uh, giant, you know, craft craft booths all around. And uh, I don't remember who I saw, but I remember that there was music there. And in later years growing up, there, of course, was, uh, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix had played there. Um, there's a famous Santana and Buddy Miles album that was recorded at, at the Crater Festival. Um, so it could very well be that I was at some or one of those shows, although I can't identify it. But I do remember that. Uh, being a little kid and just being in awe of that of that whole vibe, that kind of Hawaii hippie Woodstock thing going on. Um, so a few years later, I'm growing up. I'm in elementary school. Uh, obviously, when you're a little kid, you know you don't get to go to that many big concerts. My parents did take me to the symphony, um, and and that was a great experience. Uh, although you know, as a kid, you sort of struggle sometimes with classical music. But I, I remember um, you know doing my best to to hang with it and being inspired by a lot of what I saw. I remember seeing Vladimir Ashkenazi, famous uh, um, violin player, uh, and uh, they actually took us to a, a concert of P.D.Q. Bach. Uh, um, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to go blank on the guy's name. He's a, a kind of a humorist um, a, a piano player who kind of t- took the piss out of classical music uh, in a humorous way, but was also himself a serious composer and piano player. But the but the show was very humorous, and he sort of would make fun of, of classical music in this character uh, of P.D.Q. Bach. 
then I remember very strongly seeing this uh, John Denver concert. This my parents were you know the folky thing. John Denver kind of had a had a folky vibe still going on. This is around 1975. Um, and also Joan Baez. This was my first arena concert. So we went to the HIC Arena, as it was called back in those days. Now it's called the Blaisdell Arena. Um, these were some of the folk stars who had risen to the level of arena, you know, arena level artists. Um, so Joan Baez, that was that was pretty special. And uh, John Denver, of course, who was huge at that time. This is around 1975, and he, uh, as I would learn later. Um, had uh, a drummer by the name of Hal Blaine who uh, worked with uh, John Denver all through the early 70s. Um, and so I got to see Hal Blaine even though I, I didn't know I was seeing Hal Blaine. But but certainly by then I was really interested in drummers and drumming. Uh, and, um, you know, so I had my eye on the drummer whenever I would go to concerts. Um, the next really pivotal moment for me was uh, probably 1977, um, and, um, my parents, uh, were pretty hip. My mom had a lot of really interesting records and kind of kept up on things. I remember she had the Pink Floyd album, Uma Guma, which was a very weird experimental, uh, Pink Floyd record for those of you Pink Floyd fanatics out there. Um, and, uh, I remember, uh, when Fleetwood Mac rumors came out, my folks, were cool. They got. They were really into that record, and so Fleetwood Mac came to Honolulu on the Rumors tour, and it was a real big deal. And we mail ordered for tickets. So back then, you would like clip a coupon out of the newspaper and send a check in for whatever level of seats that you wanted, and uh, they would mail you your tickets in the mail. It was kind of amazing considering the world that we live in today. But we got four tickets to see Fleetwood Mac Rumors, and my sister and I were super excited. We were now kind of later elementary school, um, and we'd never, you know, this is kind of a new thing. Uh, so we, we get to the concert, and it really was a new thing, because this was a, now a full-blown rock concert. Everybody, you know, as soon as the lights go down, the, the lighters go on, and there's weed everywhere, and, you know, really, like, heavy rock concert people charging the stage. And I just remember, um, for me, it was a, a complete revelation. Um, that, you know, that album is a legendary album. The band was in absolute peak form at that time, um, Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie, John McVie, and of course Mick Fleetwood. And I'd never seen a drummer like that. I'd never been to like a real full-blown rock show of that nature. And and that was, you know, me and my sister, both of us uh, looked at each other. Uh, I was about 10, you know, or 11. She was around 12. And, and we said, yeah, we want to do more of this. And after the show, my parents said, well, that was great, but we're never going to go to another one of those again. So it was, it was a pivotal turning point, both for my sister and for myself and for my parents. We were in. They decided that wasn't really their thing. Um, but, uh, you know, as I look back, that was sort of a, a really pivotal um, opportunity, I guess, that I was able to take advantage of through through my parents to be able to see a concert like that um, at that time. And the following year, when I hit junior high, I had another sort of first in the world of concerts. I went to my first stadium show. Um, we had a, a stadium still there in, in Hawaii called Aloha Stadium. And although we never had a professional uh, football team or a professional baseball team, Aloha Stadium was designed so that it could be moved between a baseball and a football configuration. They'd actually slide the giant um, uh, pieces of, of the stands 
around uh, depending on what season was. And we had a triple A um, baseball team, the Hawaii Islanders, which are not there anymore. Uh, and we had, of course, University of Hawaii football, which is, you know, a big deal, like college football is everywhere. Uh, and, and our high school football games were played at that stadium as well. Um, and I think now they don't move it anymore. It's permanently in the football configuration. But the cool thing was we got the Pro Bowl in Hawaii every year. So I was able to, even though we never had professional football, we got to go out sometimes, a couple of times. I went and saw the Pro Bowl. Anyway, this was the stadium. Uh, stadium concerts, of course, became a, a big deal in the 1970s. And um, I got to see, when I was in the seventh grade, um, Boston, Don't Look Back. Uh, their second album, and I was an enormous Boston fan. By that point, I was a hardcore rock fan. I had graduated from the folk stuff. I'd had a a best friend when I was nine who was 12, so it's a pretty huge age difference at that time in life. And he uh, turned me on to a lot of hard rock that I had previously not been aware of. Um, I remember the four bands he really got me into were Deep Purple, which to this day remains in my heart one of my all-time favorite rock bands and and Ian Pace is who was a left-handed drummer is one of the, probably the primary reason why I I play the drums left-handed because I figure well I'm left-handed the way I eat and run and kick and throw a ball so I may as well play the drums this way this guy's doing it and he's great um and I might do a podcast about left-handed drumming cuz I've been thinking more and more about it and I think left-handed drummers are a uh minority in the world that are somewhat uh um uh, marginalized at best and discriminated against at worst, and uh, we need to uh, we need to have our voices heard in the world. We we suffer through life as lefty drummers. Anyway, that's that's another day, another another battle. But um, the stadium that's where I was at, and I got to see uh, some really incredible shows when I was in high school, junior high and high school at Aloha Stadium. Uh, the first of which, as I said, was uh, Boston. Don't look back. Um, unbelievable experience you know boston was truly arena rock stadium rock for the 70s i was i knew every word of every song of their first two albums and um you know we we like jumped the barrier we were up in the the bleachers we jumped like 10 feet down to the ground rushed the stage by the end of the show you know it was like one of those kind of awesome experiences uh, I almost got my hands on a Tom Schultz pick. They were throwing picks out at the at the end of the show. So that was that was that was great. And uh, I know I, I, a lot of great bands came to Aloha Stadium at that time. Some of the shows I went to, some of them I didn't. A couple other experiences I actually had. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk about those in a minute. Um, but high school, there was there was some some great concert moments. Uh, I remember uh, 1980, I believe it was. Uh, Journey came to town, um, and this was really just on the cusp of the Steve Perry era before they really turned into uh, more of a kind of a pop rock band. This was before the era of Open Arms and, and all that stuff. This was when Greg Raleigh and Neil Sean, uh, sorry, uh, Greg Raleigh, uh, who had been with Neil Sean and Santana, was still in the band and was a prominent feature, the keyboard player. Um, and uh, they were really much more of like a very sophisticated rock and roll band. And so we bought tickets. We went to see, went to see Journey. Uh, and what was so great, this is back at the arena now. What was so great about the arena concerts back at this time period was that they didn't block off the back of the stage. If you were in the balcony, you know, up in the stands, security was 
pretty lax, actually. It was was tighter down on the floor. You know, obviously, most most of these concerts, I didn't have good seats. I didn't have connections. I didn't have any money. I was just, you know, experiencing the concert and trying to get in any way I could. So I, what you used to be able to do at the um, the Blaisdell Arena was to, if you were on the upper level of the stands, you could walk around behind the stage and just stand there. Uh, and watch the concert from there, and nobody would shoo you away. And I, I remember specifically two concerts at which I did that. One was Journey, so I got to watch Steve Smith, and literally I was about, I'd say, 25 feet away from Steve Smith. I'm just behind him, standing there, watching the show. And uh, for those of you who saw Journey when, when Steve was in the band, you know, he, he was amazing. The band was amazing. Uh, he would... Uh, do this solo where he would end up at the end of the solo, like standing up with one foot on his stool and the other foot on a floor tom, you know, standing there, total epic rock moment in his like dolphin shorts and tank top, you know, (laughs) like long hair. Um, So that was epic. And it's kind of amazing to me now, you know, I never, ever, ever at that time as a 14 or 15 year old kid in Hawaii would have believed that uh, I would be friends with Steve, would have written a book with him and uh, be a, a colleague of his that has done, you know, events and clinics and stuff with him. I mean, that that was so far from my consciousness at that point. But, you know, it, it just shows you never know if you follow your passion where you end up in life. Um, so uh, the other great concert I experienced where I got to stand behind the stage was Ted Nugent Scream Dream Tour, which was around 1982. Um, If you guys remember, Wango Tango was kind of the big hit off that album. And and this was before Ted got really political and really crazy right wing. And he was crazy, but, you know, he was just a rock star back then. And he was pretty huge at that time, Cat Scratch Fever and all that stuff. Um, So that was really right around his peak. And Carmine Apice was touring with him in 1982. And I... I knew who Carmine was because I already had realistic rock. I already was studying out of it. Um, I had known, you know, Carmine already from Vanilla Fudge and and uh, Cactus and uh, Beck Bogart and Apathy. Like, I was into all those bands at that point. So I was really excited that Carmine was playing with Ted. And this was like, you know, t- today arena rock shows are so uh, well-controlled. They're so corporate. They're so run on a dime. Back then, you know concerts would just start an hour late usually they were chaotic affairs stuff would happen the band would play either a really long time or sometimes the concert would get cut off it was a lot it really was like rock and roll was still a um a rebellious uh non quantifiable as it were you know you didn't know what to expect from from a rock and roll concert and that was uh, that was just really exciting uh as well you know today you go to arena shows and you trot in and you see the show and you know the show's going to be this long and you know the encore is going to happen and you trot out and like i said back then wasn't the case so what happens at this carmine apathy ted nugent i should say ted nugent show is that some guy starts spitting at ted and ted loses it and starts screaming at this guy. He takes off his guitar, throws it on the ground, and dives into the audience and starts beating on this guy. And all all hell breaks loose, and they turn on the house lights, and, you know, Ted's in the audience. The crowd's going crazy. I remember Carmine, this was back in the days when he would wear those, you know, tight pleather pants or leather pants. Everybody wore those. And then he had, like, the long studded belt that would go, like, two or three times around your waist and kind of hang down and had that cool look. 
And uh, he took off his belt, which is about five feet long, and he's walking around the stage just waving this belt over his head, and everybody's going crazy, and Ted's in the audience. It was, it was a great, great rock moment for a, a young, impressionable kid. And it was a great show. Carmine, great showman, just like Steve Smith, double bass, flipping his sticks. You know, so I'm, I'm digesting, I'm learning, I'm remembering, I'm being imprinted on by all these, these different concert experiences that I'm having. Another great concert I saw in the arena, which had a similar vibe go on, was uh, Santana. And this was around the Moonflower era. Again, early 80s at some point. Graham Lear was the drummer. Um, great. I've seen Santana about five times in my life. This was the first time, 79. Um, yeah, so it was, maybe this was earlier, 79. I don't know. I, some of the dates run together because uh, I went to a lot of concerts between about 79 and 84. Um, and Santana, in addition to putting on an amazing show, when they came back out for the encore, they played for about another hour. And the, they tried to get them off the stage. They turned on the house lights, and they wouldn't have it. They just kept playing. The band just kept on playing. So they finally, the, the whoever, the, the, the arena folks, just gave up and turned the lights back off, and we had another 30 minutes of music. But that was definitely another really inspiring, inspiring um, concert, uh, for sure. Um, and, uh, anyway, so those are some of my, um, arena, arena show concerts, uh, experiences. Um, and then on, on some other notes, some other kinds of music, I was lucky enough to, as I mentioned before, I, I, we had a very strong symphony at that time, the Honolulu Symphony, and, uh, my parents were big classical music fans. My mom had opera on in the house, which again, I struggled with, but, uh, have come to appreciate more and more. And now that I live in New York City, I've seen some un- unbelievable operas. I live fairly close to the Metropolitan Opera House, and that's kind of the ground zero of great opera in the world. I mean, obviously, there's European opera. But in America, the Met Opera is an unbelievable um, experience. Uh, just the experience, how huge it's, it is in there, and how epic it is, any production. It's the best in the world of everybody. So, uh, but my, we had a lot of opera in the house when I was a kid, and we would go to the symphony. And I remember um, seeing Dave Brubeck and his quartet play with the Honolulu Symphony, uh, again, sometime in the late 70s or early 80s. And this was like the first time that the jazz light bulb went off inside my brain. Um, and it was very interesting because the band would play with the orchestra. You know, they would play the heads of the tunes. Uh, and there were moments, but then, of course, the band would kick off, and when they kicked in and really started uh, improvising over, you know, those classic Dave, Dave Brubeck tunes, um, it was it was magic, you know. I, I, I don't know if, for those jazz fans out here, the first time you see really high-level jazz live, it's unlike anything that you've ever seen, I, I think, and uh, different than, than listening to a recording by a mile. So... You know, Dave Brubeck, he, like so many other people, Dave was their gateway to becoming jazz fans. And, of course, my parents, being cool as they were, they had the album Time Out, so I would listen to that and was fascinated by the rhythmic stuff going on with that because that album is dedicated to uh, all kinds of odd time signatures and ethnic music that utilizes odd time signatures. So that was a very popular Dave Brubeck album, and it was kind of, as a theme album, it it really, um, it was obviously one of the most long-lasting and popular jazz records um, and inspired things like Wynton Marsalis' Standard Time series where he did the same thing. He took, but he took it to the next level. He took, you know, a bunch of standards and did 
crazy odd time things with them. And those are all fantastic records as well. But uh, I remember, I believe the drummer was Randy Jones. I hope I got that right, Randy Jones. Very dapper, silver-haired gent, playing with Dave Brubeck, playing drums with him. Uh, His son, uh, Dan, I believe, was the bass player. He had, Dave and his sons often worked with him. They're Chris and Dan. Maybe Chris, Chris Brubeck, I think, was the bass player. Um, But... uh, that was sort of who he was touring with at that time. And I, got, again, got to see Dave Brubeck several times uh, in, 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 in my lifetime before he passed away. And, and I actually went to his, uh, there was a big memorial for him up in New York City when he died. And that was a, a great experience as well. So uh, Dave Brubeck, Honolulu Symphony. And the last concert that um, I really want to bring out from my years growing up in Hawaii was um, when I was a junior or even a senior in high school, uh, 1983, uh, the police uh, were on their synchronicity tour, and this was the last United States show that they ever played until they came back whenever it was in the, in the 2000s. Uh, and uh, it was kind of an epic day, and believe it or not, um, also on the bill was Stevie Ray Vaughan, who really had just come out as a mainstream artist with his tune Pride and Joy and had broken into the mainstream. Um, he wasn't even very well known. He was the opener on that on that tour. And he blew me away. And, you know, the police were amazing. And that was the, definitely an experience. I had been a huge fan, of course. And by then, you know, being a drummer, I was massively uh, inspired by Stuart Copeland. Um, but the other two bands on the bill both knocked me out as well. Stevie Ray Vaughan, of course. And this was in an era when Stevie Ray was doing all of his Hendrix stuff. So he was doing Voodoo Child, which he did live, and he smashed the guitar. That was sort of the closer um, in addition to, you know, the more kind of traditional blues stuff that he would do. And I just remember what a huge sound that trio got. I couldn't believe that was just three guys making such a big, big sound. And of course, you know, being in Hawaii, we didn't have that much authentic blues around us. So um, that was kind of a cool experience to to see how they laid down those shuffles and, and his voice and his guitar playing and, and all of it, you know, put together. Uh, how three guys filled up a stadium. And the second act on, which I always recount this when I talk about this concert with people, was Brian Adams, who, you know, he was a pop star, Cuts Like a Knife and uh, Summer of 69. Those were probably, I don't even know if Summer of 69 was out. But Brian Adams also, like Journey, had started off as a... um, you know, as more of a, 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 a rock star, a rock singer, not so much a um a uh, uh a um you know like a pop star later on he he got really you know everything i do is horrible pop songs but uh at least in my opinion but at this point cuts like a knife was pretty rocking and he was fantastic his show blew me away I, I i was not expecting to like him at all i was bracing myself you know for cheesiness but he he really he really killed it and um and yeah, and then the police. And that was a just an amazing day. I was sort of at the peak. I was a senior in high school. You know, I had the world at my fingertips. Um, you know, life life was good. I was hanging. I went to concert with all my best buddies. We went in my friend. My friend had like a Volkswagen, uh, you know, microbus that he had tricked out. So it was all open in the back. Um, you know, obviously various substances were imbibed. Uh, but that was an epic, epic day that I think we will all carry with us. And I'm sure everybody here had similar days in high school where they went to shows that they'll never forget because you're at that moment in life where 
you're just really absorbing things. Um, I, I think I'm going to just stick with the high school stuff with this podcast, because we're already about 26 minutes in, almost a half an hour. And then I think I'll do a couple of others, a part two and a part three if, uh, of, of this topic, uh, because I don't want to try to mash it all in, and I want to think a little bit more about different eras of my life with very impactful um, concerts. But I did want to finish up this episode with a couple of other little categories that I'll try to put in uh, for for each of the other uh, periods I do, or later um, uh, later uh, uh, parts two and three or whatever of this subject. And that is, I'd like to include a couple of concerts that I remember specifically because I didn't like them and why I didn't like them and how that influenced me to think about music and concerts. One of those um, I actually saw in... This is very early on. This was back at one of my first uh, arena shows again, probably when I was in the seventh grade. I saw Donna Summer, the Bad Girls Tour. And, you know, for years, I never told anybody that I went to see Donna Summer in concert. It was an embarrassment at Donna Summer, and you weren't cool if you were a rocker, you know, or anything, uh, that you would like Donna Summer. And I have to admit, I was a huge Donna Summer fan at that time. She was red hot on the charts. She had all kinds of amazing, amazing tunes. And I think her musical uh, output has actually held up very well. Uh, Last Dance, great tune, I Feel Love. Um, uh, uh, Of course, uh, MacArthur Park, her version of MacArthur Park, the disco version of that, super cool. Uh, And Bad Girls, the song itself, those were all kind of her big hits around that time period. And she was a great singer, and the productions on the records were great. And I remember this was a a very different kind of a concert because it wasn't just a band. It was like more like a Vegas show, which, of course, I had never seen as a kid in Hawaii. Um, I had never experienced anything like that. But it was a kind of a show where she had a full string section on stage behind her, a full horn section, you know, percussionists, um, and, you know, the and a conductor. And she was out in front of all of this. So it was all there to support her. And of course, that is a kind of show that we see all the time. I just saw Barry Manilow. Um, I've seen Barry a few times. Russ McKinnon, his current drummer, is a good friend of mine. And I just posted a a piece about Barry Manilow and why every drummer needs to listen to Barry Manilow and understand the drumming uh, on that. I put up a post on my... uh, Facebook page, and it, it, it engendered a huge amount of discussion, which was great. Uh, but, you know, Manilow, these type of shows where the, the front person is a superstar and, and the band is there to back them up, and that's that vibe of show. And so Donna Summer was the first show that I remember seeing like that. But after having seen, you know, Fleetwood Mac Rumors uh, and some of these other concerts where it was a band, I was a little let down, honestly. And, you know, she did about four or five costume changes and runs off stage, and then the band does something, or some dancers come out. And I just sort of, for me, that wasn't what I wanted out of a concert experience. And I remember walking out of there being like, man, really? Like, I, you know, because, of course, I'm listening to the great musicians on those records and expecting that I'm going to see a band. And instead, I see a singer, you know, with uh, a bunch of people kind of in the shadows behind them, and um, that was of less appeal to me, shall we say, being that I obviously uh, am an instrumentalist. I'm thinking about the instrumental 
aspect of the music as well as the vocal aspect. Um, but I remember very distinctly that. The other kind of like uh, memory I have of high school was that I went and saw Triumph, the rock band Triumph from uh, from Canada. Uh, and they were sort of like, I guess you could say the poor man's Rush. Um, of course, Rush became, you know, big and well-known around 1980 to the masses. If you were really hip, then you were into like 2112 and stuff already by, say, 78, 79, at least in Hawaii. Rush had already been going since 74, 75, but uh, I didn't first hear about them till probably about 78, 79 and 2112 and stuff. And so, you know, Triumph was sort of put out as another rock trio from Canada that had a high voice singer and they were instrumental virtuosos. Um, and so since Rush never came to Hawaii, uh, I liked a couple of, of Triumph songs, Hold On, uh, Rock and Roll Machine. Uh, you know, they had some, they had some cool stuff, but it was a good, again, another experience of like, you know, this just doesn't hold up live. It's, it's the, the gloss, of the records and the hype of what the act was supposed to be about didn't match up to what I actually experienced live. And it was sort of cheesy. Like uh, Rick Emmett, the lead singer and guitar player of the band, he, you know, in the middle of his, you know, each, of course, it's only a trio. So each member got like a huge unaccompanied solo, which was, of course, big in the 70s and probably people still do that nowadays but but he you know sort of did the russian sailors dance and he sped it up until he was like and everybody's like ah, there's strobe lights going and i'm like no no that's that's wanky that's just wanky even even then as a 12 year old i knew the difference between sort of uh great musicianship great performance you know, great getting the crowd going, but, you know, cheap dog and pony show tricks, which I really thought that was. And, you know, in my career, in my life, I've been a professional now for 25 years. I I understand that to some degree, you know, give the people what they want. I mean, people like that stuff to some degree, but I think it has to be in, in measure and it has to be backed up with a lot of solid musical stuff going on and depth. There has to be depth. And I felt I think that's one thing I felt like Triumph didn't have compared to, say, Santana or Journey or Boston or some of these other bands that I had seen, um, especially bands that, that jammed and, you know, did a lot of improvising or had long solo sections. Uh, you know, a band like Santana, keep that going for four hours and you're not ever going to feel like they're using cheap tricks, as it were. Oh, and speaking of cheap tricks... I saw Cheap Trick on the Dream Police tour. Uh, unbelievable, unbelievable, totally blown away. Uh, they were so great live, just a huge sound and a huge, massive production. They didn't do anything fancy, except at the end of the show, the whole show, there were two other drum sets on either side of Bunny Carlos down on risers on the side, and I couldn't figure out why they were there because nobody was playing them. At the end of the show... They brought out two other drummers and did this kind of, I guess it was part of the encore, did this did this uh, drum battle-ish thing. But uh, Dream Police was one of my favorite Cheap Trick records, still is. Uh, and, and again, 
I've, I'm now quite good friends with Bunny Carlos because he's a huge vintage drum fanatic. He's he's got probably more bigger Ludwig drum collection or big one of the biggest Ludwig drum collections of anybody in the world. And uh, every every year I go to the Chicago Drum Show and Bunny is there, um, and he's uh, he's got a booth where he buys and sells and trades stuff, and he's just just a dude in the in the vintage drumming community. But we went this past year to. He has a barn. He lives just across the border in Indiana. He's about an hour away from where the Chicago Drum Show happens. And every year he invites people back to his barn, which is, it's not, don't even think of it as a barn. It's been converted into an incredible space, and it's full of his drum collection, which is stunning. And uh, I was back there with, um, Stanton Moore was there, Jason Sutter was there, Michael Vosbein from Crescent, and... Uh, you know, um, I've seen a lot of vintage drum collections in my life, a lot of really, really high end top level stuff. And this was, this was mind blowing. This was great. So again, it's like, you never know where your path is going to take you and who you're going to end up hanging out with or befriending or being a colleague with, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, so those Donna Summer and Triumph were two examples of concerts that I was disappointed by, and hopefully I shared the reason why. And I think that stuck with me as far as what I have done or what I've involved myself with as a musician, what I want to be a part of. Um, I think Royal Crown Review, the band that you know I was a part of for 19 years, uh, was a great example of that because we really were about showbiz and putting on a great show. There were a lot of solos and people getting features, but at the same time, we were fanatics for the music. We were pushing ourselves continually to be better players, to improvise, to go new places on stage, to take everything up a level, to really uh, take the crowd with us. And um, I think a lot of my experiences and influences, both rock and jazz, uh, allowed me to bring that kind of an attitude to that band. And it was great because it doesn't happen that often where everyone is on the same page. And trust me, it was a, a band of seven guys. Our lead singer always referred to us as... Uh, a democracy of seven dictators, which I think is the greatest description, probably of most bands where all you know everybody's an equal member, because it's always a as you as everyone here probably knows who's ever been in any band, not easy uh, to to have a band situation going. Uh, but in any case, I feel like uh, a lot of the things that I've described in looking back at this episode, a lot of things I've described um, that I experienced and that were influential for me, I've tried to bring some of that ethos to the, the, the music that I play or the way I play that, that music. Um, and I think also the eclectic nature of it. I, I am a huge fan of music. People will often ask me, what's your favorite drummer or what's your favorite kind of music? And my answer is always, you know what, on Mondays I like Italian food and then on Tuesdays I might eat Thai and then on Wednesdays, you know, I'm really into French. So, to me, there is no such thing as a favorite. Why should we limit ourselves? You know, obviously I have early influences like Ian Pace, who I'm always going to have a soft spot in my heart for and always going to listen to what he's doing. But to me, the more the merrier. And I'm, a, I'm an extremely eclectic listener. And I like to experience a lot of different kinds of music and culture in general. So again, I think that's really reflected on what I like to play, the music I like to make, uh, the style I like to to put out uh, as as an artist myself. But the last little category that I would like to include is um, regrets, concerts that I didn't get to see, I could have seen, 
uh, or wanted to see but didn't get to. And I guess I've just got a couple on that list, again, from this early period growing up in Hawaii. One is uh, Deep Purple Burn, uh, the Burn Tour, when uh, Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale joined the band, when Ian Gillen and Roger Glover departed. And Burn is one of my all-time favorite albums to this day. I still go back and listen to the title track all the time. I think it's one of the greatest rock tracks ever. I think Deep Purple in that whole period is one of the greatest rock bands ever. You can debate me all you like. It's just my personal preference. Uh, I love a lot of other music too, but um, they came to Hawaii. I was just too young. I was I was probably eight years old, and there was nobody to take me, and I didn't even really know... I just knew Freck Deep Purple, and I knew the name, and I knew that it was cool. And I was just, it was maybe a year later when I was nine that I had that best friend who was 12, and I really got into Deep Purple. But by then, they, they had come. To, I think 74 was the burn tour. So um, that's one regret. Another regret, uh, Peter Frampton on the I'm In You tour, and Toto was opening on their very first record. Um, I was in the sixth grade. Who was going to take me? How was I going to go? I was 12 years old. You know, I wasn't enough of a rebel to like just go myself. So, but I was really into Peter Frampton. I had Frampton Comes Alive. I was thought that was the coolest record. You know, I knew every lick of the 14 minute Do You Feel Like We Do. And this was his following album, I'm In You, which was also a really cool album. Um, and Toto, Peter Frampton and Toto, didn't get to go. Bummer. Um, and then my biggest regret, probably in high school, was that uh, I was offered, my buddy called me and said, Hey, man. Uh, I got 16th row tickets to see uh, U2 and Oingo Boingo. Who Now, this is, again, probably 81 or 82. Um, the album was War, had just come out. New Year's Day was a huge hit on the radio, Sunday Bloody Sunday. And Oingo Boingo was really hot at that time as well. Uh, Only a Lad, you know, that was their kind of their big moment in the sun, early 80s. So these were like two new wave bands, I guess. It was still like part of new wave. And I, uh, I was an idiot because I think the tickets were like 30 bucks, you know, which was a lot of money back then when you're 14 or something. But I, I was like a, an academic geek and I was like, sorry, man, I can't go. I have to finish a paper, which I'm embarrassed to even say that now because, you know, thinking where my priorities are now in my, in my life. Uh, to think that I passed up on that opportunity. And the police actually had come to Hawaii on their very first tour uh, when Roxanne was their only hit, and they played at the University of Hawaii Campus Center Ballroom. That's, you know... But back then, I didn't know the police was, and I and I and since I saw them on the Synchronicity Tour a few years later, I, I can't say that I have huge regrets about not seeing them uh, on their first tour, although that would have been really cool as well. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I hope that you have found my musical journey interesting, and I hope that it has inspired you uh, in in your own thoughts about inspiring concerts that you have seen that have changed your life uh, or, um, you know, got you thinking or set the course of your life or made you become a musician or, you know, whatever, uh, however music affects us. It affects us all in different ways, and, and it often impacts us in very profound ways. So uh, I hope that uh, if you want, uh, there will be a post when this, when this podcast drops, there will be a post accompanying it on my Facebook page about this topic, and I hope that you'll uh, comment on that as well. So thanks much, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Daniel Glass Podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. 
And please make sure to jump over to iTunes and give us a rating on this podcast. Whether you liked it, whether you hated it, one star or five stars, every rating truly helps. We'll see you next time around. 